0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for the program is Dr. Trevor C. Peterson. Dr. Peterson is a licensed professional counselor and psychoanalyst in private practice in Laramie, Wyoming. His 2015 book, The Economics of Libido, Psychic Bisexuality, The Super Ego, and the centrality of the Oedipus complex, won the 2016 Gradiva Award for Best Book. He joins us today to talk about his new book, Psychoanalysis and Hidden Narrative in Film, Reading the Symptom, first published 2019 by Rutledge. Dr. Peterson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Christopher. And uh, a point, uh, an issue here already, um, 2018 actually is the publication date. Oh,
0: 2018. All right. I was looking at the inside jacket here. Maybe I need glasses. 2018. All right. Um, still a new book for us. Um, so as always, the, the podcast begins with the, the question of what motivated you, as far as we know, our motivations to
1: write this book? Um, that's a good question. I, I would say that I wrote that book... With the, um, basically, I mean, it was my dissertation. Like um, I went to the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis and uh, um, it was very important for the doctoral program there that uh, one kind of do uh, data research, that like um, whether it's going out and doing interviews or, or having like some kind of objective thing that one can measure Like, um, they stressed that like what they didn't want was me to just write like a a theoretical dissertation. Um, they wanted to have like something that like a a cultural object to study. And so, um, I was kind of forced into it that way. I I didn't come in with, um, having this project in mind. And then, uh, once it, like once I was just kind of around in, in Boston, um, at the school and kind of looking at different areas, like I'd say that like, um, reading film studies, uh, looking into some of the, the work in that department kind of uh, interested me. And then I just uh, kind of started piecing together what I thought was kind of a, a novel approach um, to to be able to look at it in a different kind of way and in a way I felt was truer to actual clinical practice, like the, in the listening to a film in the way that I listen to a client or patient and, and also just um, getting into... You know the the triangles like the the aspect of the repetitions that like are are a lot of what um, therapy becomes about once you're not just dealing with a symptom once you get past like just the OCD or the panic attacks or whatever it is in a client you always have to get into character and those um, those character patterns and repetitions are I'd say like for me the most interesting and important parts of of a therapy
0: yeah so you and I share the Boston Graduate School Um, I was there as a master's student, and um, what I remember is that the research course, because you know, yes, as you said, research um, is a huge, it's, it's central to the Boston grads, but I was there as a master's, but the course was everybody together. So we had doctoral candidates, certificate candidates, and master's all together. And when I was getting my master's, and I watched at that time, Dr. Meadow, basically interrogating people about what they wanted to write about. And was it psychoanalytic enough? I was terrified. <laughs> uh, what was it like to go through as a as a doctoral candidate?
1: Um, it was definitely an interesting experience. Um, it's uh, I wouldn't say that I was uh, um, terrified of it, but um, I mean, a lot of the times I kind of watched some of what they call like the the process oriented um, approach to this stuff, and just think that. You know, um, they're trying to say immediately, how are people feeling in the room? What are people like bringing into like the dynamics instantly? And I often felt like, you know, the actual discussion of the readings took a backseat to that. Um, and so from that, from that side of things, like I, I often just kind of felt like, well, I'm waiting around to listen to another person make drama in class or, or waiting around, like hoping we can get to something. And then you know oftentimes uh i I would be challenged like, "Oh, Mr. Peterson has an intellectual defense because he wants to talk about the readings, <laughs> you know things like that, so I just it's um I appreciated a lot of the the readings we had to do, yeah, <laughs> and I uh, appreciated the the modern um psychoanalytic technique. Um, I think it's been invaluable to have that as as a reference point for certain clients, like otherwise if if I didn't, I think that um, I probably be like, uh, um, uh, approaching things in, in a way like that, you know, from the language, right. That would be overstimulating them and, and just being able to pay attention to that and the contact, I think it's like, cause, um, as you see from the book, like a lot of my technique that I've developed has been like in contrast to the modern analytic uh, modern analytic technique, it's been me trying to become more active with people who can be you know, but to know that like, there's people who can't, that you can't do that with and to, um, you should, um, be following them. You should be waiting for contact. Like, um, like that's kind of the foundation from which I, I, I built up from, but I just, you know, I think in general, like SpotNets like literally made this as a technique to work with schizophrenic clients. And I think that that should be kept in mind. So, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of high functioning people. I see like who definitely have, you know, um, say, primitive stuff that goes on, because we, we all have that, but they can be more active than, than they are treated. And, uh, and that's uh, kind of, even too, like, I mean, even the book and, and some of the, the stuff I have, like, a lot of it is to complement what I saw as the deficiencies in, in the school. Because, uh, as you know, like, everything's about aggression. And, and from, um, like, the book and, and my latest art article, it's like, I wanted to really give the other side its due. I, it's not all aggression. And like um that that is definitely an important part. But if you keep on approaching it that way, like I remember students who would share about their um analysis with me and like how like they actually, you know, their their analysts would get mad and be like, well, like, where's your anger? You know, and saying things like that to them, like because they're so it's so ideological. Like you're you're following like this idea from like what you learned in the school and you're trying to go after it. And uh i just think that you know uh, as you might have seen in the article like uh, a lot of stuff has nothing to do with the anger you know a lot of it has to do like with eros um sexuality um it, it impulses of destruction i try to complement with it impulses of restoration and like wanting to bring back and revive like the dead imago so mhm
0: mhm yeah i um well, we could go down a, a rabbit hole today of modern psychoanalysis, um, which would leave out so many of our listeners and we'd leave out your book. Um, so let's, um, let's dive into the book. There's so much here. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and then just the other night I was, um, rewatching, uh, Moonstruck, uh, and I'm watching it and the book is in the background. I'm like, Oh, who's that? Who's that? So it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, so whenever I, I, uh, prepare for, for interviews, I'll read a book, um, and just read it and uh take no notes whatsoever and there's usually one maybe two things that stick um then of course i go back and and dig in and 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 pull out stuff um there was a couple of things that that really stuck with me when i first read it and one of them is um and now i'll, I'll take from the book you you write my main interest is to attract the reader um, who uh, may have been repelled by psychoanalytic criticism in the past, lending to the impression that psychoanalysis is a silly game for the vulgar or overly erudite, and to literary critics, a call beyond cleverness. The call beyond cleverness really resonated with me because I've had the experience um, in supervision, um in life, where cleverness, stands in for actually doing any real work. So can you talk about that, that main interest and and what attracted you to that?
1: Yeah. um, So before I I went to the Boston graduate school, I would say that like most like humanities students, right. The, the only psychoanalysis I I really was familiar with was Lacanian. Um, I had Brits and Freud. Um, I'd also kind of went with a, Uh, Wilhelm Reich and like some body psychotherapy from psychoanalysis. I've always had that interest um, even before I studied it formally. Um, But I would say that just, you know, um, it's, I think it's very common to see that like, um, like I don't want to just point this to the, um, or charge the Lucanians alone with this, but just uh, a lot of people seem to hide behind the jargon and abstraction and uh, they can, Use like certain terms, and and they're not getting into the actual content of the the movie. They're not getting into the content of the the, the session with um, their clients. Like it just seems like that there's like a you can say clever things about like oh the lack of this and you know the the jouissance of that, um, but just um, in my conversations with them, in, in my readings for a lot of them, I, I just find that a lot of it lacks detail and um mm-hmm. uh, and like what i wanted to get in like with this book was specifically like like what is the detail of this if i'm going to use a freudian apparatus like um how do i impart this that i can say like across um this range of phenomena right like the superego works like this um or um to talk about in terms of like uh what is the literal triangle like going on in this in this film and like and how would we describe it and and uh you know, um, and not just talk about like the symbolic, the imaginary, right? These things in a in a, in a general way to say like, this is like what's happening in the triangle. And now you can see um, it could be applied to what's happening with these other characters, right? And that there's, these are the parallels that are gonna go across. Um, so I just, I need content. Like um, for me, it's not interesting um, to, to try to sound smart or clever. Um, I think I have like a working class background. My dad's a carpenter. I'm my hometown, you know, all my, like none of my friends that I had in, um, in high school went on to like post-secondary education. And, um, and I always have in the back of my mind, like the sense of like, you know, speak in a way that like those people could understand you speak in a way like, um, that, like you're you're spelling things out and you could have a conversation with somebody who doesn't necessarily know your field so well. And uh, that's always been like a, a high ideal of mine that I've tried to, to reach.
0: Yeah. Well, I, when I read that, I also thought of, um, you know, Freud's admiration for Mark Twain, you know, pretty plain spoken and, 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 and straightforward. So I'll, I'll begin at the beginning of the book because this is um, where, what you're, you're, you're saying, in film, there's a living unconscious. What what does that mean? What is it? What is the living unconscious that you find in film?
1: Um, so, I would say that uh, it. This takes us kind of into like the process of doing the symptom reading, but just um, the for me the background is is the basic um, postulative drive theory, right? Which is like we all have motivations um, that. Sometimes you're, you know, you feel close to a friend. Other times you're competitive with them. Like they're they're ambivalent motivations. Um, but that like we have this basic sense of like we when we identify with a, a character in a novel in a movie whatever it is like um, we have to like the motivations that are being displayed or I identify with them. Like um you know in in the way that people certain people who are like action movies right like they have to be able to find that interesting in some sense right like that there's like the tough guy and he's never beaten right like the he knows mixed martial arts and he can take on 20 people in a room right like for me like that that seems like over the top and kind of preposterous you know but just like somebody who can get into that stuff like they have to share that like that's part of like their own ideals or or their fantasy structure and um and a lot of people are attracted to like you know, say horror movies, right? In the same principle, like some people watch them and they will get triggered. They'll have their anxiety and like, it's not a fun experience at all, but just for, you know, to get into, you know, this evil malevolent force um, that's supernatural and, and so strong that's, a, that's affecting these people, like whether you're identifying with the villain, right? Or you're identifying with the heroes, like you have to have some of that motivational structure in yourself to, to find the pleasure. And like, once you Say, start with that that basic foundation that we have drives and these drives, like a lot of them are are like universal, um, even though the way that they'd cash out, right like if you have a general drive, like being competitive, right? Like it's gonna cash out in different cultures in different ways. But in general, like you know the, the idea of things like being competitive, having authority figures, having defiance with those authority figures, maybe having them as a mentor, right? Like there's so many different types of relations that like are going to be like transhistorical and like that people will experience in different places. And then once you have a sense of, of like um, that that's going on, like um, then you can kind of start to bring it over into like, well, what is really going along with these motivations um, and some of these triangles that are, that are happening there and also like to the extent that um we know that um things are repeated because they're traumatic right like when freud introduced the repetition compulsion he like it's you know the idea of um you know um a uh, um, mentor having a bunch of ungrateful proteges and this keeps happening to him or like a woman who chooses somebody who dies and that ke- and she keeps on finding new men who um who die on her and i just think that like that like to start to know that within these repetitions, there's also going to be this element of trauma Um, from there. Right. You get to start seeing like how it's, it's really um, kind of brought alive in, in the films, like um, another film um, for my next book, um, where I'm going to be kind of releasing more symptom readings, like, and and part of my dissertation work was on the piano. And uh, I think it's such a beautiful scene, you know, when, like beautiful in its darkness, of course, when when the main character Ada gets her um finger chopped off. Um and just like the way it like the cinematography, how everything like is shown and like how everything like is going around there, like you can really have it imparted about like how this is something that's kind of almost like world shattering, right? Like that kind of something that kind of is breaking down all of reality when it happens. And and to show those traumas like that are, are like, it's, it's again, like a dark beauty, but, but something that like when you're human and you're looking for the um, humanity of others, like, you know, that most of us are neurotic and sick. That's one of the beautiful things about psychoanalysis is that, you know, we don't try to have this big divide between like the logical doctor, right. And the, and the illogical and irrational patient. Like we know that all of us are built up on these traumas and, and are repeating things. And uh um, and a great filmmaker, a great artist, right, is in some ways in in love with that humanity, that that dark side of humanity. I believe, you know, otherwise it's it's pop, right? It's a it's a overly sweet, overly um, stylized, and, and it doesn't have like um, that that human quality to it.
0: Yeah, when you said, um, I mean, you said a lot, and we'll go through it, but the the idea of the triangle and the repetition, one of my Favorite films is a, uh, uh, I think 1990, maybe 89, Avalon by Barry Levinson about this multi generational family, of course, in Baltimore. And one of the things that he does is there's a scene where he manages to get all the generations sitting together on a porch and not for a portrait. They just all happen to sort of wander out there. Um, and when you look at the scene, people are grouped in threes. So he's got multi generations multi triangles it's really it's an astonishing uh still from the film that i really love um okay so in this you mentioned uh symptom reading there is a symptom reading um so talk about you know why that is so named as you talk about in the book and then what is the symptom character let's get into these these new ways of looking at things
1: sure um so The symptom I I took from Freud's analysis Mm -hmm. of the symptom, um, uh, I think the example is, uh, you know, a woman who has this kind of psychosomatic, like, pregnancy, um, like, that she has some, you know, conversion symptoms, uh, um, she's vomiting, like, um, there's not a a physical genesis of this, right? And and, uh, when he analyzes it, like, it goes with, like, uh, the wish to be pregnant, you know, to have children and also um, the unconscious need for punishment um, that, you know, if, if she's going to keep on being sick like this, um, she's going to not be as uh, physically attractive. And so um, to kind of break a symptom down that way, right? Like that uh, it's going to have this, this wish in it. And it's also going to have um, the unconscious need for punishment going, and it's going to have these like, kind of hidden components like that's you know the stuff that i'm sure i hope it attracted um any analysts to to psychoanalysis right is like what's really going on behind these things like what are the secret meanings and um and so that basis right i I just saw it as like um something similar is going on here with this with this movie analysis is that i'm trying to kind of work up like well what's going on with like um say this triangle in the film, and uh, and if it's um, if we take this triangle and we see it as like um, kind of displaced from other interactions going on between other characters, you know that um, we're kind of seeing it as something like the symptom, or we're kind of trying to reconstruct like what was going on. And um, so you, you mentioned the symptom character, and so there's also the that's contrasted with the ego character, right? so the the symptom character is the one whose triangle is is taken to um illustrate what's really going on in the relationships of the ego character and in this case in this um in this book i um i use the film the lost boys and so um the older brother michael is is the symptom character where he gets to have the interaction with david the the leader of the local vampire gang um and uh he has his, like, you know, edible interest in Star, like, um, who, you know, isn't technically the girlfriend or wife, right? Like, doesn't have that like, that hard romantic relationship with him, but is kind of, like, getting on the back of his motorbike, right? Kind of, she's under him in some way. And uh, and that drama there, you know, um, like, to isolate the symptom character, to, to begin to do the work with any film. Um, this one, like, I thought, to choose Lost Boys, like, was very... would would make this much easier because like, um, for me, like the, the biggest process with, um, identifying the symptom character is like, who's the most like unrealistic, um, idealized, or in this case, supernatural character, like, um, that that's the, that's who will be the symptom in the film. And, um, so to say that, you know, um, Sam's older brother is a vampire and vampires don't exist. Like it just kind of right away can bracket that all that material and say like, okay, so why did this writer like need to even go to um, the supernatural to these things that lack reality and like, and what is he, what is he trying to hide in there or push into that? And uh, um, but I'd say again that like um, I know that some of the complaints that some um, acquaintances and colleagues have shared um, is that, you know, in other films, like it's, it's much more difficult to tell, but um, I, you know, I often feel like that uh, I, get, I get the point, but I also feel like I just um, I disputed it. Like when in the many films I've, I've analyzed, like it hasn't been too difficult, and, and there's are there are more tricks as well um, to to kind of isolate the symptom character that I, I did put in the in the book. Um, you know, things like um, them, uh, the ego or main character, like being with somebody at the beginning of the film or together with them at the end. Like there's just certain things and, and some of those are, are actually taken from work in in uh, studies uh, literary studies of the double or literary doubling that um I, I put in the introduction
0: we uh, left off and you had said that the, um, the the criticism colleagues associates were critical of the choice of the script the lost boys that film what was their criticism
1: um I guess they weren't so critical of the film I mean I, I don't know if they I think I, I personally enjoyed it. Like, um, I remember seeing it, like as a, as a young teen and, uh, um, but they, um, some of the feedback I got had gotten was that like, well, not every film has supernatural elements in it. So how would you say, like, how would you know who the symptom character is? And, um, and I, I've just shared with them that, you know, um, in these cases, like where it's, um, very fantastical, like, um, that's often like, um, who the symptom character is, but in other films, when there's not a fantastical element, um, it's not difficult to say who is the idealized character. Like who's the character who, um, like um, when I say with the film The Piano that's coming out for the next book, um, there's no there aren't any monsters or or supernatural elements there. But for me, like the idea of of Ada, the main character, you know, she gets sent um, into this marriage to live on an island. With somebody and then, you know, um in most cases in the past that would clearly have just kind of like been the end of her life, right? She's sent on by her father, her family, went to somebody else, and then she gets to live out her days in this uneventful life there. But you know, the the idealized or fantastical element there for me is like um it Baines, the the half kind of white person, half native, you know, who has the native tattoos on his face and he's there and he's gonna seduce her out of her like you know, kind of narcissistic withdrawal, and and maybe, you know, some arguably some autistic elements there in it, and kind of like bring her back to life in in a way, make her kind of feel like love again. And uh, so for me, it's like, that part of the story, that element of the story, and and most stories will have this, right? It's like, um, it's just, that's like, closer to fantasy than real life. You know, most people um, don't, you know, uh, who are lonely don't get found by a manic pixie dream girl who's going to like, you know, shake them up and take them out of the dullness of their routine. Like, you know, these these idealized figures, right, are, are going along with in like with psychoanalysis, like our parental imagos, right, like parental substitutes. They kind of show up in this way that they're they're larger than life. You know, they are 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 special and, and kind of shake things up and and that's key, you know, to the idea of like, you know, like what's the basis of a triangle, you know, other than a classic edible triangle, right. Of like, um, you know, mommy and daddy and me, or right. Like, um, a man and a woman who are married and then having that interloper who's going to come into that. Like, you know, a lot of the stuff that we we know that way is just kind of in the narrow romantic sense and in Freud's family romances. But, you know, there's so many different types of triangles and, um, and authority, um, a love life, um, triangles and friendships, you know, where friends get jealous of each other. So, um, that's the, that's the thing I I hope I imparted in the book is that there's, you know, there's other, um, ways to look at other films to get to this, but I I do appreciate that some readers um, found it kind of difficult to understand how to find the symptom character.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that actually you had addressed that because you, you state somewhere maybe early on that it would be that the skeleton key, I think is the term you use, is, um, psycho, but that that's in a sense almost too easy, but that's how you got in. And you actually say that this, this can apply to any, any narrative. Um, and, um, you call it a formalized five-step methodology. So, for the person that wants to look at a script that doesn't have monsters or vampires or you know paranormal stuff like that, what is the five-step methodology that one would apply to literature or a film?
1: Um, so, the the first step is to find the um, kind of the symptom character and kind of look and see. Well, what what um, Person in this film or in or sometimes whole groups right like um for me and the lost boys it was kind of just get rid of the whole like vampire subplot right like um keep um sam um as his boy who moves with his mother to like stay with his grandfather and he starts to see his mother dating right The, the video store owner um that, like, that's the kind of realistic part of the story. And if you just kind of get rid of, like, the fantastical, um, fantastical element, like, um, then you can bring in the, the triangle that is found within it and start to kind of make sense of what's going on in the more normal normal or ego narrative or, or plot. And uh, so, like I said, with, um, with um, David, right, like, you have the – he wants to get to star, he loves her, David's in the way – um, and you also have some authority elements there as well. It's not just a, a straightforward love thing. It's also a question about like, um, as I spell out in there, just, um, there's a, a strange element in the film is like, why is David so obsessed with having Michael join the, the, the vampires? Like, why do they need them? Um, made him so badly. There's nothing special about him that really stands out. And after he starts to kill off members of the vampire gang, you think they would just be like, it's not worth the effort. Um, but once you kind of see the dynamics, like um, again, whether they're in uh, work life or, or authority issues, like who's going to dominate or be in control there or in love life or in friendship, um, identify the triangle. And then the next part of it is, um, um, kind of looking for the moments in which that triangle can be applied to the ego character or the ego narrative. And so, um, I'd say that, uh, this is done kind of with a like with a element of the symptom that has to be kind of have to has to be constructed that I, that I found to be interesting in the in the sense that it applied to many films and and like seems to be like what I, I offered as 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 an obje- objective code, but um, the idea is that once you remove the symptom characters and um, take out their plot, you'll find these moments where that plot impinges upon the ego character's plot. And at those moments where there would be that impingement, um, that's the moment in which the triangles of the symptom characters are then actually transferred into the ego plot. So, for example, you know Sam is on the phone with his um, mother and uh, um, she was on a date with Max, the video store owner. And like, those moments are kind of interrupted by him referencing um, Michael being a vampire, his older brother, and this vampire business is happening. Um, and so I kind of take this as like um, when that he brings that into what's going on with the dynamic between his mom Lucy and, and, and Max. Um, that's when this edible thing is happening that we see explicitly with with Michael, the older brother David and Star. And um, so to take those moments and and kind of put them back into the ego characters narrative, like um, that kind of those are again just following like what are the impingements on that story by the characters who you are supposed to I call it like just excising them, like just totally getting them um, out of the story and just looking at it from as if they never existed at all. And, um, um, and uh, we're talking about um, Max and, and the mother Lucy. And then that kind of brings us to the next part, which is that, um, you know, Max himself later becomes a symptom character. And so that's another element of this, which is like, you know, some characters in the first round are treated like they never existed at all in the story, but then in the second round, it's like some characters get transferred into the the symptom plot. So Max is revealed at the end to be the head vampire, um, and so at that moment, it's like you know, what was kind of a realistic betrayal, right, of of his mom trying to date um, this video store owner, um, now the, that that becomes fantastical for him. So at that moment, it's like. Um, so he now must be a symptom character, and what he's doing has to be transferred on to somebody else. And uh, so, um, I'd say that uh, along with this second round of of symptom character um, stuff, um, there's another point. Um, what I try to bring in the, into this uh, reading is the idea that there's often problematic parts of the film, and everybody's like done this, right? Like um, you watch a um, some kind of like. Zombie movie or action movie, and you're kind of like trying to find the holes, and like, well, that doesn't make sense that this character did this. And like a lot of films are, you know, have have these moments. And even like really good films, too. Like um in the piano, um, the, the moment I take from there is like, uh you know, so Ada gets her finger chopped off, um, but then she's allowed to leave with Baines, like this person who she like professed love for right? She didn't love Stuart. She wasn't at the Island Long where she, you know, had his kids or had a whole bunch of ties to it. So like essentially, she gets to leave and, and be with the man that she loves and goes off. So why does she attempt suicide at that point? Like, she throws her piano off, and maybe I can understand, like, leaving the piano behind um, in, in some kind of way. But just, like, um, you know, in the, in the script and, and, and in the film, I, I think as well, like I, I don't think that it's difficult to see there. Like she purposely chooses to put her foot where the rope, um, is going off as the piano is sinking into the ocean. There's like some rope on it and it's going to pull her in and she does it. Um, she consciously uh, does this thing. And I just think like, that's such a strange moment. And like, um, and when I address it in the the literature, like um, other people who've talked about it, it's, it's interesting too, because as a psychoanalyst, right, you get to see like some people see that for what it is. Some people, um, almost don't mention it all as if it, it didn't happen. Some people talk about it as like having this kind of really strong philosophical importance. And uh, and so there's just all this all this drama in the literature around that. And for me that's, you know, I got perfect moment for getting into the symptom reading. Like what does that moment really mean? Because it's not you don't get a good sense from just following the motivations of the characters. And and by by having the symptom carriage and having this stuff brought into it, you do get this like other Whole other like um, like narrative that you get to create that does make sense of those moments beautifully in, in many films, and of course, in, in there's films that it's not so um, great with with handling. Um, but for the ones that it, it does work for, like um, like those moments um, get great explanations. And, and so, for example, in The Lost Boys, you know, for me, it's like the idea was um, like why is why is Max like so interested in having Lucy? Why did like you know he's trying to get David and the other vampire boys to go after Michael and, and and Sam and kind of like get them to, to join just to have Lucy. Um, but then from the subjective logic, right. It's and subjective. I just mean in the sense that it's like, you know, when we make these supernatural beings, like vampires can't go in the sun, right. Um, they're, they they can not eat garlic. There's all these things, these rules that we, that we put with them. But when you really appreciate that logic, which is, um, you know, um, vampires are immortal. And like, why is he really pining after this, this woman who's maybe going to, you know, be alive for like another, you know, 30, 40 years, um, where he's not aging, like, um, and and he's going to live with her and, um, and she's going to keep on getting older or, um, and that's, that's one element of it because like the script is script interpretation or script sorry The script, um, like narrative, um, initially makes her as she would just be like uh, somebody who'd be like a daytime guardian um, for the vampires. Um, but then there's also the idea of her becoming like a bride of Dracula kind of scenario. Um, in which case it's like, you know, the idea of making Lucy into a, um, a female vampire um, to make the other boys listen better. And for me, it's like, well, what would David and the rest of the boys like that she's not their mother so like, why would they somehow be more obedient to listening to this random woman that that um, Max chose, and they're going to become like more like um, docile because of her presence? Like, um, so I just you know I look at the film in, in those ways, and I just think like this is um strange. Like it just you know they they these moments strike a viewer and and stand out. And like I said like and like when the film has a, little, a lot of secondary literature or or scholarship on it, like um you know you can see these moments like are really really brought
0: out in that way. And, um, well, what I said, what I like about, um, one of the things I liked about the book is that you, and you, you, you address this, I don't remember the exact thing, but you're addressing what's actually there. What I see as a viewer, so I can say, okay, that's the idealized, that's a symptom character. I can, I can do, as you just said, what happens when I remove them and what does it reveal? And we've talked a little bit about, um, motivation here. Um, and it, this is a, I'm going to try to tie a lot of things together to get into a different part of the book. Paul, Pauline Kale, the great Pauline Kale, when she retired in 91, she said, um, that one of the things that was becoming annoying for her is that she was asked, um, to review the filmmaker's intent and not what was actually up on the screen. Um, which I really loved that. Um, and I've seen that in just other areas of, of life where you're asked to review the intent or consider the intent and not the result what's up on the screen. And, and of course, your, your book and what you're suggesting is what's there on the screen. What are we dealing with? And what I'm tying that into is that in writing this book, you say you did not consult with filmmakers. And then, because now I want to get into the, this, um, the idea of the double, there's great scholarship here, um, which you review specifically Ronk, I remember, but you, you make the, the observation that not every author could have self-consciously chosen to double their characters. So motivation, intent, what's up on the screen? Um, what is the, the double?
1: Yeah. Um, so in the kind of literature review portion, um, I start with the idea of the, of the body based double and, um, and like the literal doppelganger, right? Like somebody who looks exactly like you. And then I kind of follow, um, the literature from there to, to get into this idea of, of like what, um, Rogers, like one of the authors called like the latent double, that it's not, um, you know, your literal doppelganger, um, who physically resembles you. Um, and they're like within that realm, like, a uh, um, I think I um brothers Karamazov or, or like one of Dostoevsky's stories, like when people kind of were doing work with the the what I call the body based double, like a lot of them are kind of looking at um like a little bit beyond just like having somebody who looks exactly like you. They're getting into this thing of like, well, there could be these blood ties, right? And so the idea of the body based double is like, you know, whether it's like literally like you or based on these blood ties, like there's something there's there's some element there that that refers back to us being um, like corporeal, in, in the sense that, like, um, I think is 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 really important for that level of, of doing analysis. But then from there, the uh, latent double is is um, like the the way that I um, cash it out with in in the analysis. There is like um, by bringing up the idea of projective identification. And, and saying that, like you know, um, with this Kleinian concept, um, like we understand, like a lot of people are like taking their the representation of who they were in a traumatic situation, and they're they're putting that upon others, and uh, and it's very like you know very very common. And 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 this is something like um, I referred to it in this book that like in my first book I, I just kind of stuck with the classic when I was trained in like the idea of, of the active and passive right so the, cli- the cliche is like the doctor um you know the doctor visit that your kid goes to like afterwards they want to come by and they want to play doctor where they're going to give you the shot right or they're going to kind of do things to you and so they're going to kind of master have this like take their passive stance before the doctor and turn it active um and like that makes sense but then like you know like once he starts getting into things like I, I, some of the clinical vignettes I share, like like what happens when you're the perpetrator and the the trauma or the ego injury is caused by you being active and hurting others, right? And then from there, as um like when that's in you, like you're not moving from active to or sorry passive to active, you're moving from active to passive. Like a, a lot of thing I've seen, a lot of things that I've seen in the clinic involve somebody kind of you know being with say often romantically, but also with a a job too, right? Like you're um, staying with a bad boyfriend or girlfriend who treats you like, like shit and um, staying in a bad job where the boss is yelling and it's just like very toxic functionality there. And like, what makes that acceptable, right? Like what's, what's the thing in you that like you're staying in those situations. And a lot of that is that is like, you know, based upon bad conscience that I've seen. Um, So the idea that, you know, that we're getting to this double involves like definitely the idea of projective identification that like, we're seeing people in these situations that that we endured, whether as the victim or the perpetrator, and we're putting that into them and we kind of are, are dealing with it in that way. And, um, and, and that this is going on right in, in our stories and the things that we enjoy as well. I actually thought about
0: bosses and people in our lives since the, you know, the, the ideas that this methodology can be applied to any narrative. I thought, well, what about, what about the narrative of my life? You know, who's the symptom character? Who's, who's my double, um, you know, as expressions of of things I don't want to know. Um, Did you have any ideas that way? Like, did you come up with something? Oh (laughs) yes, totally. I've spent, like I said, this book has been a lot of fun. Um, And, uh, like I said, when I think it was last night or the night before I watched Moonstruck and I'm like, Oh, who can I take out? And then who's the idealized person? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I had a lot of ideas that way. Um, and, um, the, so let me ask a question. I'm thinking of a film now. So in, in the book, you're talking about how specifically fight club and psycho you get to the end of the film and there's the reveal and you're like oh gosh and then you get to look back over the film and see what you missed and um the one that really jumped out for me was the sixth sense um and i'm and i'm just sitting here thinking is he i mean to a certain extent he's a double of himself cuz he's his dead self but because he's the dead self and this you know perfect therapist with this boy and everything he's also idealized so is he a symptom character? Is he a double? Is he both? I'm putting you on the spot here, but it just came to yeah, mind. No, um,
1: it, I, I have to just say I have not seen that film since I was like, um, you know, maybe like 16 or something, um, like a long time ago. So, um, but it, you're right. Like, um, it is very much like should be one of those kind of big reveal films, like like Fight Club, that that you can make that out. Um, I honestly, I'd have, I'd have to see it again to see like. Well, which aspect would this be? Like is this bring like, you know, Bruce Willis's character like um as part of the boy or is there somebody else? Like I I don't remember how involved his mother or like other people were around him. So I'm not I couldn't say off the bat and I'd have to I'd have to watch it. But um you also mentioned Avalon and uh, a couple other things that were I you know, um I wish I could I was more of a film buff and like somebody who uh came to this right like um from from the love of the, um, of this, uh, you know, medium. Um, I I do like films, but I'd say that like, uh, I can't say that I am somebody who has gone out of their way to make sure I I see all like the, the good ones, right. Like all the Oscar winning ones, um, all the ones that like, you know, have good word of mouth. Like I'd say I'm somebody who enjoys music more and reads more than I, than I watch films, but I I promise I will have an answer for you. about the sixth sense. I'll go (laughs) back and I'll watch it and I'll make sure that I, I'll give you my reading right off the top.
0: Oh, it'd be great. I would love that. Well then let's, let's talk about things that are also, um, that are in, in your book that we can also talk about, um, to understand the double, the, the example you gave, uh, which you could talk about here, um, the figure of Tiresias in the Oedipus myth as the double of Oedipus. Can you talk about how that's, how that's true?
1: Yeah. Um, so, um, the way that, um, I understand Oedipus, I mean, it's, it's another thing where like, um, you know, you started, you opened this kind of conversation, dialogue with the idea of like cleverness. And I feel like, you know, like nothing's made, uh, been made more clever, right. than like what Oedipus really means, right. Like, um, everybody has like some kind of deep interpretation of, 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 what's going on with it. Um, but for me again, like staying with, like wanting to stay with things that are like tangible, like, um, I see it as like, uh, you know, along with other stories, like, right? like we're looking at somebody, a story of, of, of hubris, right. Where somebody, um, makes this, um, kind of arrogant claim that they're going to track down the killer and, um, and that they're, this is going to happen and they make a promise. And for me, like, um, that's one of the things that I've come to appreciate. Um, the longer I've been a therapist, um, is that, uh, Um, what I've worked with um, many addicts and I kind of can start to get back into like what really kind of set them off the deep end, you know, like there's, there's some, um, you know, there's like uh, definitely things like, you know, um, identifications with parents, like, you know, who are alcoholics that they grew up with, right. There's all these environmental things that um, totally come and play into it, but just right. Like with, with everything, there is always this historical piece, uh, which is like, you know, like, um, this person was using drugs, um, recreationally at some point and had control of it. It wasn't dominating their life, but at what point did they get They go off the deep end and now like they, they can't hold a job. They, they fully are addicted, right? Like, um, there's something, there's a story there. And, um, when I worked with certain clients, like it came down to, um, like so like and then like moments that we'd follow associations right, and um follow dreams, like these things and we'd get back to and then and there are these moments of like where like they lost their own self respect right like um it's a very common to you know have these like guys who worked in the oil rigs, um you know did these jobs where they made a lot of money um and like you know had a house, had a boat, had whatever. And like, you know, that kind of the idea that they lost those things, you know, that they couldn't keep it. Um, like, you know, that's a moment where they, um, they really kind of, kind of can get stuck on, like that they, they really screwed up and in this big way, and they can't forgive themselves. Like um this intrapsychic relation. And with Oedipus too, like, you know, I, I, I've like um, worked with addicts who've been through treatment a few times and. Um, and they made that promise like to their family, right? Like I'm going to be better. I'm not going to lie anymore. Um, I'm not going to steal, you know, um, your prized comic book collection and then sell it all for $50. So I can get a quick bag of dope, you know, like the stuff that they do. It's like, sometimes, you know, it's, it's um like, and it's humorous and how awful it could be. Like, um, and how, like, you know, uh, selfish it can be. Um, but Uh, so those moments, you know, where they really did make this promise and, um, and they didn't keep it like they, they can't look at themselves in like the positive way that they did before. And similarly, you know, um, some women like I work with, like pride themselves on, like they didn't get to the point where they sold their bodies, right. They didn't have sex for meth or, or do whatever. Um, and like the ones who have, like, um, there are these moments where like to kind of see how they let themselves be is like again an intra injury that they caused them and so for me like that's what the you know taking um account of like the formal elements of the myth like Oedipus made this promise and and what we're seeing with like um Tiresias you know is kind of this sense of like um if he's a symptom character in there like um that he's kind of representing this stuff that's kind of um, going on with the intrapsychic relation of Oedipus himself and that like, you know, this kind of, um, sense of like, um, uh, wanting to, you know, get to the answer and, and kind of feeling like the answers, um, like being held back, um, that that's, you know, part of the drama of like, you know, what's, what would be affecting his pride in this. And, uh, and so I just think that like that element, um, along with several other myths too, like um, that. Um, say, for example, with Electra, like um, you know, her brother's the one who beheads like mom and and the new male. And it's like, but if you can kind of take the the brother back into that, and and like then and Electra is the one who's responsible for all that. Like then you kind of get a better appreciation of like what's going on in that story, you know. Um, so this this element of like I said, a projective identification of putting these things out there and not owning them oneself. Like um, I think it's a very much a foundational bedrock um, thing that every psychoanalyst should be looking at and, and having his, um, his or her mind of, of like what is going on with uh, with a client. And um, and I think again, I think it offers like a, a interpretation of, of the Oedipal myth that, it, that it is not clever, but just taking things for what they are on the surface and 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 opening up that dimension. Like I said. Like it's, it was, I don't remember reading much about this stuff or getting taught much about like causing your own injury. You know what I mean? Like it's like, um, and like, again, it's just stuff that I happened to, have started to see in my, in my own practice where it's like, there's, this is a thing. Like, why, why aren't we talking about this? You know? But that's a lot of my work. Like I said, it's, it's just like, um, really trying to understand like what my school wanted to teach me really getting into different, um, schools, like I'm trying to educate myself and and getting into their stuff and just trying to say like, like, um, how much do I see this animated in the clinical session before me? Like, and and what's missing in it? Because I, you know, if you follow the psychoanalytic method, like you're not just, you know, the omniscient analyst who's interpreting and saying like, this is what's going on. Like, you know, you're, you're following these indirect things, whether they're slips, um, Nonverbal movements, and you're just like you know, there's something there, and it's like so you start to untangle it, pull at it, and and trying to get them to go down further. So we're making, you know, we're we're making all this data that goes beyond what the theories have, and so the theories have to be retooled, and and that's what should be greatly appreciated in in Freud, right? Is his willingness to say like you know, here's my um, ideas on anxiety or narcissism. And then like later I'm going to like, you know, to retool these or, or, or come back and approach them as opposed to, to other psychoanalysts who I feel like, you know, all they do, like their whole entire corpus is like, you know, I feel like a way of covering up all the stuff that they didn't know, you know, and like that they, they learned more later, but they're going to make it seem like they knew everything all along. And, um, and I, I do want and do enjoy that scientific approach of like, you know, this is my working theory right now. Um, And I hope to be disproven. I hope that like, I find out I'm wrong about it. And then I get to like have the benefit of not being in ignorance. And I can say like, this is like the way the formulation should be. Um, But again, I I think there's way more omniscience um, in, in different schools and there is like Freud's scientific approach. And, and uh, I I think any reader of the book will see, like I, I firmly identify with, with the, the basic Freudian models and think that like anything I've read in any other school, like pales in comparison to like, um, cashing out what he means by the superego, for example. And, And that there's a lot in there that just, I feel like it's just been swept under the carpet or the people, you know, wanted to jump on the social justice bandwagon and just eliminate him as a white male. Right. Like, like all these things, all these reasons we have to go against it. Um, but I, um, I always want to temper that by saying like, of course he made mistakes and some of his formulations I totally disagree with. But, um, but there is rigorous thought there that's underlying like the, Id, the, the superego, um, the drives like, um, that I think deserves like, um, serious attention that it, it doesn't seem, nobody seems to want to give it like, um, I feel like I'm one of the sole writers on like, um, Freud and, and the model that's It's like, a um, doing this work today and, and every time I, I share the ideas everybody wants to criticize it like based on the idea that it's just Freud and old you know and I and I should be more contemporary and, and looking at other other stuff that's being written about now right? I feel like you know anybody who's a wants to do good scholarship knows like you start at the beginning and you work your way up you know you start with Freud and then you see like well what, what developed afterwards and, and you know the history where I think a lot of you know, journals and psychoanalysts today are writing with like references that don't go like, you know, earlier than 2012. And I, and, and, uh, and I have a lot of doubts about how original, you know, like that, a lot of that content is, I think that, you know, um, a lot of like relational psychoanalysis and other schools, I, I don't think Freud was saying something that different. I don't believe in the whole one person, two person psychology. I just think that they, they, Straw all this gave it a simplistic interpretation just to feel superior or just to be better in some ways. Um, and in other ways, like, you know, there are legitimate um, say technical and clinical differences in technique that go along with it. But intellectually, um, uh, I, I always defer to, to John Mills work, you know, on this, on this area and, and his criticisms of the uh, uh, intersubjectivists and the relational psychoanalysts. I feel like after reading his work, I I felt like kind of empowered to fully go back and just embrace like the, the Freud that I had read and and saw and, and tease out all these things that are in his, um, in his body of work.
0: So listen, this is, um, since we went back into psychoanalysis and theory, um, I'd love for you to talk about, um, something that you, you, you mentioned in the book and, and, and also pick it up in a, in a footnote. Um, I also, by the way, in reading this, I'm like, Oh, Are we as authors doubled in our literature review? Is literature review our symptom? I mean, I really, I've I've had a lot of fun with this. Um, I argue, you write. I argue that the two deep objects of psychoanalysis are perfection and death. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. um, So um, that's another thing that's you know getting feedback on on the second book because in the first book, the economics of libido, um, I kind of uh introduce uh i mean it's in the subtitle right like psychic bisexuality and so um what i wanted to do for this one um was to kind of leave like i didn't want to um kind of bring in all that information i just felt like i wanted to focus on certain parts of it and uh um and uh be able to introduce that in the next book which is still my plan like um um, as you're aware of there's there's the 2020 article uh, about narcissism and egoism, perfection and death, and uh and that's kind of gonna be included with the the book and um but the argument in the economics of libido, which again, I don't recapitulate there, I just kind of say like that these are the two touchstones. It's just that um you know, in Freud's work, um, there's an interesting passage on perfection, right like not not being something that's um, kind of something that's uh weak. This noble in this straightforward way, and, and anybody who's a history of philosophy, like um, person, like um, they know, like kind of one of Descartes' arguments, right, is that he, we have the idea of perfection within us, um, and work with that idea of come from, and uh, but for Freud, you know, he kind of brings up perfection as this negative quality, where like you know, um, because like um, something becomes repressed with um, one of our impulses like we're forever going to go after this thing that we'll never be able to reach. Like that perfection isn't something that's, that's um, directly knowable. It's like this thing that becomes created negatively. And, and, the, and this work as well, like death is, is, has the same status. Like, um, you know, he brings in the idea that, um, say like, um, for all and purposes, right? Like when you faint, like you lose consciousness and, um, and, like, that would not be any different than, like, death, right? Like, you just, consciousness is gone. Like, you're not aware of anything. And he kind of points out, like, in these moments, like, um, like, like everything just goes blank. Like, there's nothing there. And um, so, like, when we have these fears of death, like, um, like, we can't get at them from the sense that, like, um, say, uh, if I'm under the water and I feel like I'm getting close to drowning, right, that I start becoming, my soul becomes aware that it's leaving the body, like, that my kind of self-preservative instinct, right, is, like, is directly conscious of anything like that happening, like, that is not going on for anybody. So, like, when, when we have um, this fear of death, like, it's not coming from this this conscious or phenomenological experience, like, straightforwardly, you know, and so he creates the construction of, like, um, fear for life, you know, and, and fear for life being, like, the sense that, like, um, it becomes an idea, right? Like that um to almost die in some way, right? It's like I'm not gonna, I'm gonna leave behind loved ones, I'm not gonna accomplish the goals I wanna accomplish, right? Like this this I used to me like um when I when I again when I faint or pass out like I just go blank. There's just blankness there. There's nothing straightforwardly of fear. Um I'm not my soul's not leaving the body and like seeing that there's hell below or having some kind of experience. And so just you know to get to this place of um, fear for life um, and having death has this negative quality, like um, I just saw those two things together as being kind of like very interesting ideas that that kind of um, would be animating what's going on with the unconscious um, and the unconscious like uh, has so many senses, so I guess it'd be it better for me to say that like you know um, what's important in psychoanalysis is the idea of the imago or the object and and specifically right. The, the parental substitute, like the, the idea that, um, you know, our drive structures and what we strive, strive after is, is planted in this bed of like that we accept authority figures, you know? And, um, and once you kind of have that as the, as the basic model that like we're primary, primarily related social beings and we're looking for authority figures around us and, Taking a lot on on credit, right? Like um, I like to for a contemporary example, right? With climate change, it's like I, I can't personally say I've read the science, uh, you know, the the, the reports on um, climate change and be like, yeah, there's definitely. I saw the details. I, I measured everything out. There's definitely a problem here. Like I take it on faith, right? Like um, a belief in the authority of like those in the um, the academy and the universities. That, um, that 97 or whatever the number is uh, percent of scientists agree on this. And I just think it's got to be right. Like um, I just, the idea that it's a lie would be preposterous, even though that's what we know the Republicans are doing, right. They're trying to bring in a wedge and say like, well, you know, the universities are corrupted by the, the liberals and, and there, there's really a debate here. Like, you know, they'll try to bring in that angle. And so we just like so much of our lives is lived under like authority and just taking things for granted from these sources of authority. And um, on the, what I call, or I guess like using Freud's like system, like um, the side of active egoism, the side of somebody who's like more of a competitive like agent in the world. Like, you know, um, I understand or kind of cash out the idea of these parental substitutes as like, you know, that this form of perfection, you know, is what's transferred on to these different objects you know, that whether you see like, you know, your boss as like having more knowledge or skill than you, um, being more perfect than you or whether it goes up to like the idea of the president, you know, that, um, like, uh, I, I bring that up to say that like in some ways, like, um, like anybody who's watched the, like our current president knows, like he's not better than, he's not more intelligent than the average person. He's not, you know, say more well-spoken or educated, like, um like, um, But there's still some people I think who give him this, this credit, right? That, um, that he has, he's in this role of authority. He has to be important. And Mm it's like, so he's gotta be a business genius. Right. Um, and it's like, well, but he didn't write his book, you know, his, somebody else, the co author of it said he wrote everything, you know, and, um, and he didn't, he's not a genius who gets out of paying taxes. Like he pays somebody to get out of taxes. Like, um. They do all the work, and he just throws money at it, and um, and he's gone bankrupt five times. But yet, this this image of him, he has to be smart. Like this is what I hear from all my clients, right? Like Trump's a genius. Trump's a you know a billionaire. Like they they want to extend this credit to him, but it's just not to be found. Like for anybody who's like looking into the the details of it. Um, but that's the thing, like you know, this this object of perfection needs to have. These these authorities within society, all the way up to God, and and uh, and um, and its complement, the the death and mugo. Um, that is also like what I try to. I don't get into it in this book. I, I...
0: yeah, with with let's say the, the the president or climate change, those two things. The this t- people's um seeing him as as they see him not being dissuaded or moved at all to me this is the power of transference that you it can't be destroyed there was something i read recently maybe just yesterday that self-disclosure doesn't destroy transference it just cannot be destroyed it's that that powerful when it's dealing with an ego ideal Um,
1: um i i would disagree a little bit about that um so i would say that that's the difference say between having like a a borderline or um kind of um, clients who have more, um, say early developmental stuff versus later, like when you have a high functioning client who's a professional and has insurance, right? Like when you have all those things, like you know that they have put in a lot of, like they have a lot of transference objects onto society, right? And they have buy-in, like um, you um, are educated, so therefore you must be smart, right? Like they validate all those points. But um, working with addicts, you know, I, I get um, the opposite. I get all this pushback, right? Like, um, you're just book smart. Like, you haven't lived life. You don't know what it's really like, you know, and, like, um, and the, your book smart stuff, right? That doesn't really help. Like, um, it just, it's not getting into the deep stuff, right? Because for them, a lot of them, like, when you see AANA, like, you know, like, getting into God, right? And, and those aspects, like, they, they think that that's, that's deeper, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and that's what's going on, too, with, like, a lot of the republican versus democrat split too right like they've taken those that transference to things that we have in our society and they put them back onto like their priest or their gurus or whoever it is and in in their circles right that like they will give that authority status too um and so it's like uh, a lot of people can put those in places that don't give like you know say clinicians like me or you that much credit And like, um, and I think I make a remark in that book about like group psychotherapy and how like in that process, you know, when you have a bunch of, um, antisocial, um, like hardened criminals in the room, like they don't want to be under an authority figure and they want to take me down essentially as as a, as a group facilitator and like, you know, and you could lose like credit, you know, in front of the eyes of other group members and lose your transference. Mm -hmm. Like if you have this, this person dominating you in those situations. And as, as somebody who got into the field, because like, you know, for a, a bunch of reasons, but just like you know, somebody who fundamentally identifies as like other people are interesting to me. I genuinely want like to see them do better and enjoy that part of the work. Like as I see them improve in their lives, like um, you know, like I just kind of learned in my process that it's like I have to stand up and say stuff with with certain people in the room, and, I, and my transference, like the the credit I'm extended, really is fragile. For, uh, for a lot of people in, in this population and for people, right, who are um, really in their um, schizophrenic processes, right, and, and stuff that's, like, early narcissistic stuff. Like, they don't care about you or me. Like, you know, they're off in, like, some adventures in their head. You know, the the pope is going to be murdered and they have to warn everybody, right? Like, like how could what you or I have, like, really reach them in, in just our normal way? And as, you know, from being from the modern analytics school, it's like, what we learn is like to get into their life, right? Like to get into their, their bubble and kind of take on a certain type of transference from them. But you got to earn that. It's not just given, right? Like you got to put in the time before they really kind of can put that through you. At least that was my experience, like with my training and like with some of the people I have now, it's like, I, I, it takes me like, it takes a while to get that narcissistic transference from them. And, and um, we're, other people who come in are instantly seeing you as having the answers instantly like thinking like, well, he's a doctor. Right. So actually, you know what, I'm going to seek him out rather than just an MA in social work. Right. Like his, a doctor is going to be even better. Like some people definitely have that.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like we've, we've, we've started our next interview, which will be on your third book. So you'll, you'll reach out to me when that's published.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll let you know. <laughs>
0: Good, good, good. All right. Um, so again, for our listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Trevor C. Peterson, Doctor Trevor C. Peterson. So you can trust him um,
1: about uh, not, not really because I don't come from a you know a, a certain type of school, right? I'm not Ivy League. So like, still so please go see a, a Harvard doctor, right? Cause they're <laughs> they're better than than the place I got my degree.
0: It was still Boston. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> talking to Dr. Peterson about his new book, Uh, Psychoanalysis and Hidden Narrative in Film, Reading the Symptom. Thanks so much for joining today. Thank you, Christopher.